the Tom Sumner Program. Old Fashioned Radio for a New Generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. The Tom Sumner Program is made possible with support from Seth David Radwell, a recent guest on the program and author of American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold a Secret to Healing Our Nation, released in July 2021. As Publishers Weekly writes in its recent glowing review of American Schism, business executive Radwell's epic debut examines the historical influences that have led to what he sees as the collapse of politics in the United States. Seth Radwell makes the case that the current chasm between the American right and left can be traced back to the 18th century's Age of Enlightenment and the basic tenets of liberty, equality, and reason. American Schism provides a historical perspective that can help bridge current-day divides. American Schism by Seth David Radwell is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. For more information, go to americanschismbook.com. program. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program.
Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program, and my guest this hour is uh, Chief Legal Analyst for Esquire Digital and uh, the editor of today's Esquire. And uh, he joins me by phone. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, the Texas uh, controversial abortion bill, but more importantly, the uh, uh, Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization and how it might impact Roe v. Wade with um, Aaron Solomon, who joins me by phone. Hi, Aaron. Welcome to the show. Hi, Tom. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, let's talk about this a little bit. Uh, the all kinds of cases started coming out of Texas as soon as they passed uh, Senate Bill 8, which essentially says, uh, what, that that uh, an abortion uh, beyond six weeks is illegal? It's another one of the heartbeat laws, but what was really outstanding about SB 8 was the very odd enforcement mechanism that it had. SB 8, as opposed to any of the other heartbeat laws, including the one we'll talk about in a minute in Mississippi, basically allowed anybody to go out and, and make arrests. And one of the reasons they did that is because they wanted the legislature and the Texas judiciary to kind of try to be, you know, one degree removed from enforcement. Well, that's contrary to common practice, I think. It sure is. <laughs> yep. I mean, I, I'm not even sure what to say about that, Aaron. It, I mean, it took me so completely no, by surprise, not, that interpretation of it. No, honestly. There's not much to say, truly. I mean, you know, Texas SB8 was designed as, it, I think the legislature was like, how can we design a heartbeat law that's going to be different from other heartbeat laws in that Courts are going to want to strike it down, but essentially it's going to be the enforcement mechanism that's kind of a different trigger. Uh, and remember, the Supreme Court, it's been about a month now, heard two SB8 cases, and everybody expected, you know, since they were kind of emergency cases, that the Supreme Court would make an early decision. I was pretty confident that they would wait and hear Dobbs first, but I'm kind of surprised. It's been, you know, a week or so since Dobbs, and we haven't heard a word about those SB8 cases. Again, they were kind of based around emergency injunctions. A little surprising. Well, one of the political uh, pundits that participates on my weekly roundtable, Paul Rosicki, uh, uh, commented yesterday on the show that um, he really doesn't expect them to roll this ruling out until that that batch right before the end of uh, the session, <laughs> as they often do with controversial issues. You mean the Dobbs ruling, right? Yeah, I agree totally. It's going to come. You know, we're looking at May or June before we hear about this. But, uh, but uh, you know, part of it is not the Supreme Court avoiding getting involved in Roe and Casey. This is really deep, complicated stuff. What we're looking at in Dobbs, the Mississippi heartbeat case, is are we going to, in part or in whole, tear apart a 50- and a 30-year-old precedent? This is not the kind of stuff that the Supreme Court clerks are going to be able to work on overnight. So I've got to give them a little bit of empathy on that. Well, and and John Roberts act a, a little out of character, um, pulling up the uh, uh, notes from uh, Justice Blackman. 
Yeah, he did. I mean, you know, everybody needs to understand, and it's funny, because no matter where one sits on the political spectrum, people either feel strongly, and I think that the majority of Americans feel that this may overturn Roe v. Wade, or people feel strongly that the court won't overturn what Roberts himself has conceded. And quoting Casey is the settled precedent and the law of the land. So while all this remains to be seen, it's important for everybody listening to the show to understand that 13 justices over the years, in opinions, have basically reasserted the primacy of Roe v. Wade and Casey. That's a lot. This is, Roe v. Wade is the number one case that Americans recognize by name. And it really is, you know, have been a law of the land for half a century. So I don't think the Supreme Court is in any way lightly going to take their responsibility of making the right decision in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health. Well, but it's interesting in in what Roberts did because, it, and he's been referred to on my show many times as, um, being an institutionalist and one who really doesn't want to um, undo previous rulings of the court. You know, he, he is um, conservative in a different way than, than how most people perceive that um, with regard to the court. But he, and, and this is so unusual for him to dig into the Blackman files and and pull out language that talks about uh, viability as a way of saying, in essence, we could gut Roe v. Wade without overturning it. Well, yeah, and actually, you know, you're right on. I think that's what's going to happen. So when, you know, people kind of put my back up against the wall and say, guess what's going to happen in May or June? What's the ultimate decision going to be here? I don't think that the court in this case is going to overturn Roe versus Wade or Casey, but I think they're going to take a sizable chunk out of it. I think that they're going to find things that are wrong with the Mississippi law in issue that will also play to the foundation of these long-standing laws. Um, as I said, I think they're taking this responsibility very, very seriously, and to over, you know, to, to go to the concept of stare decisis, right? How American jurisprudence relies so extensively on these strong precedents. Roberts himself, in the oral argument in Dobbs a couple of weeks ago, said, you know, we take this seriously, and this is such a settled, such a settled precedent. So I think that that's why you're going to see such a long case, and I think that's ultimately going to be the result. In my opinion, at least. More about Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization currently being uh, considered by the U.S. Supreme Court from Chief Legal Analyst for Esquire Digital, Aaron Solomon. Straight ahead. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. 
The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can. Keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses. And where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County. Where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place where you never get harmed, a magical place with magical charms, indoors, indoors, indoors. Take it away. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. More about Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization currently being uh, considered by the U.S. Supreme Court from Chief Legal Analyst for Esquire Digital, Aaron Solomon, straight ahead. The fact that this law came out of Mississippi is is interesting because of the the just the 
culture and climate in in Mississippi with regard to women's rights? That's a great point. And one of the things that was raised, I, I was one of those people, hopefully few people because it was painful at times, that read, you know, the 500-plus pages of, of filings in this case. And something that came up again and again, and again, this is not to take a position in any way. It's to say that, you know, everybody agrees that in certain situations where women aren't allowed to have an abortion, it, it can play in other ways as a factor that can change the trajectory of their lives. Now, Mississippi is one of the states that has the worst laws on the book to protect women's rights. And I think that's one of the reasons why the court was intrigued by this Mississippi case, because, again, everybody listening to this needs to understand this is not the first you know, case that's come in front of the Supreme Court to challenge Casey and Roe, and the Supreme Court often denies granting a writ of certiorari to cases like this. But there was something, and we won't know what it is until we read these opinions. You know, the opinion of the court, I'm sure there's going to be strong concurrences and strong dissents as well, as to what it was about this Mississippi heartbeat law that stood out to them. But and, you know, that's going to be a mystery. We can all guess what it is. But you have written that uh, there are some uh, points made in this, uh, this case that um, really speak to the heart of whether or not the, the same things exist now as they did when Roe was passed 50 years ago or, or uh, when the case that's- was decided. And, and one of those things is, is viability it has become very different in people's minds. I think people, if polled, still think abortion should be legal. But I think that number that the number of people that agree with that is going down because of a number of the things that are argued in, uh, in Dobbs. You're right, and I'll address that in a sec. I just want to say one thing that Justice Roberts and actually Justice Breyer have said several times recently. It's very important that given public opinion about the Supreme Court today, which is not as rock solid as it used to be, that the court in no way is being seen as political in making this Dobbs decision. You know, they've got to do what every Supreme Court has to do, which is basically decide by their interpretation of the law and precedent. So in that light, going back to what you were just talking about, you know, people, a lot of people think that viability happens at a different time. Uh, A lot of the American people, and there's different medical opinions on that as well. Uh, Also, the reality is the arguments against, you know, the, the arguments against a necessary abortion in all cases in Mississippi. Some of them go to the availability of birth control and the higher quality of health care than we had 50 or even 30 years ago. And this was evident in the briefs. It's something that came up again and again. And, and you've written that you think that was intriguing to the court. I think it is intriguing to the court. Again, you have to understand that you know the bar that we have to cross to get any case in front of the Supreme Court is extremely high. Just this morning, you know, we're, we're talking on, um, on Wednesday. So just this morning, the Supreme Court heard a case about education funding in Maine and religious schools. 
And there have been lots of cases like this that have asked to be heard at the Supreme Court, but they, the court found something compelling about this main case. In a similar vein, the court is finding something compelling in my mind, not about the heartbeat law in Mississippi, because there's a lot of heartbeat laws that are either on the books or in state legislatures, but about the facts of this Dobbs case. And again, like I say, we won't know exactly what that is for a while. And it's the what what is exactly the the Dobbs case? Well, basically, the Dobbs case is a heartbeat law that says that you know it's impossible, well, virtually impossible, to have an abortion over fifteen to sixteen weeks. Um, and a lot, the standard for viability set within Casey is 24 weeks. Some experts feel that the standard for viability should be 25 weeks. So there's only one legally licensed abortion clinic in the state of Mississippi, and that's Jackson's Women Reproductive Center. So when the heartbeat law came into effect, uh, they challenged it, and they won at the basically enjoining the law, making it impossible for this heartbeat law to come in at both the district court and the court of appeals level. And that's why the case is entitled Dobbs versus Jackson, because Dobbs is the representative of the Mississippi government. And the Supreme Court decided to hear that. Had the Supreme Court said, no, we're not going to grant cert to this case, then the case ends at the circuit court of appeals level, and the winner would have been Jackson's Women's Health Center. And the... And I'm not, and I'm not sure the order of, of what happened there, Aaron. Um, the Jackson Women's Health Organization um, sued to enjoin the law? Correct. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And because basically, if they didn't do that, the law would have gone forward. And, and they were successful... So Dobbs, then, is challenging that outcome. Right. They were successful in two different ways. So they were successful, essentially, at the trial court. Um, so that was, you know, a while ago. That was, like, 2018. And then Mississippi appealed, and then they were also successful in the appellate court. Um, so basically, they said, hey, listen... But what they said was essentially this. If a ban on abortion after 15 weeks is unconstitutional, then it follow, follows that a ban on abortion at an earlier stage of pregnancy is unconstitutional. So whether it's 14 weeks or 6 weeks or 5 weeks, or whatever the case is. So the Fifth Circuit, which was the Court of Appeals, basically followed a similar rationale to the district court. It said, yeah, like we talked about a few minutes ago, it said, yes, it is possible that a fetal heartbeat can happen as early as six to seven weeks into the term, but they had an issue with the viability standard as set forth in Casey, because again, Casey, as of today, is still the law of the land, and that viability standard isn't six weeks, it's 24 weeks. What, when they talk about constitutionality with regard to reproductive rights or whether you want to call it pro and anti-abortion or whatever but when the abortion issue is in a court how how do any of the aspects of it 
um, be considered uh, constitutional or unconstitutional? What are the That's legal? Question, yeah, what are the legal pinnings there? Because you know, my reading of the Constitution never really came up with abortion. And, you know, I bet you it's a question that, like, I'd say 70 to 80 percent of our listeners have. I've got the answer for you. So when it comes to the actions of the state, as regards a woman's control over her own body, we're talking about the 14th Amendment Due Process Clause. A quick, you know, Civics 101 refresher, 14th Amendment for the states, 5th Amendment for the federal government. Um, That's what's important. So all of these constitutional challenges when it comes to abortion are rooted in the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, which basically says, you know, again, the the 14th Amendment, you're right, the 14th Amendment, you're not going to find the word abortion in the Constitution. But the court's interpretation of the 14th Amendment Due Process Clause is that it would be violative of due process to have excessive control over what a woman is and is not allowed to do with her body. And then it's case law and precedent that sets where that line is. Okay, that that is what I was looking for, Aaron. Thank you for that, because it really clears it up for me. Um, essentially, this is about the government not being able to um, restrict uh, that activity um, separate, based on the Constitution, you know, separate from case law and precedents. Exactly. It's where that line is able to be drawn, and that line, no matter where we each individually believe it should be drawn, the Supreme Court is always going to look at, is the line drawn in a way, in a manner, and in a place where it violates a woman's control over her own decisions and over her own body? Does that... um does that create a problem if uh, the Supreme Court wants to uh, 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 vote in favor of Dobbs? Well, not necessarily. So if the Supreme Court votes in favor of Dobbs, if the Supreme Court says, you know, we're going to overturn the lower court and the appellate court, and that the Mississippi heartbeat law is okay, it depends on how far they go, because, you know, what again... Any plaintiff could challenge another heartbeat law, but I don't think the Supreme Court is going to come out and say, based on Dobbs, we're saying that all heartbeat laws are okay. In other words, they're not going to give states a carte blanche to say that there's no abortion at all or there's no abortion under two weeks. Each state is going to seek to restrict abortion in different ways where they either have these heartbeat laws on the books or are in the legislature. Aren't they, in fact, um, changing the test that will be used, or wouldn't they be changing the test that would be used in cases going forward? Well, sure. It wouldn't just be Roe and Casey anymore. It'd be Roe, Casey, and Dobbs. If somebody wanted to lean toward Dobbs, they could which is exactly why I try to describe it as taking a chunk out of it. So they could say, you know what, a woman has the right to have an abortion, but we believe in heartbeat legislation. And again, this is like, we're making this up as we go along, so I don't think that's how they're going to go. But they could say, we're changing the viability standard from 24 weeks to 6 weeks because of the fact 
that many people believe, and there's some medical evidence, that there's a fetal heartbeat at that time. They could come out and do that. I think that would be highly unlikely. It would mark a dramatic move away from precedence. But we've got to remember one thing, though. If you look at traditional media, right, all you have to do is Google search the Dobb case, and you're going to find lots and lots of people writing about the fact that, you know, the sky is falling, and abortion is going to essentially be outlawed in, in many ways after this case. That seems to be at least a lot of the media opinion. I wrote and spoke for days after the oral arguments, you know, disagreeing with what other people were hearing. You know, even five minutes after the oral arguments ended, the New York Times had this, this I believe, pre-written piece that said, Supreme Court set to overturn abortion. It was a great clickbait headline, but they didn't cite anything in the oral argument that I listened to pretty intently that I interpreted the same way. So I'm not saying that my interpretation is right and the New York Times is wrong. I just think that it's important that we don't get too hyperbolic on any of the end of the spectrum and let the Supreme Court do the work. You know, there's a lot of controversy about when life begins, from conception to heartbeat to all kinds of biological things, Aaron, that I frankly don't understand well enough to even describe. But... What I'm wondering is, in cases like this, um, do the courts, including the Supreme Court, do they do they look at the science, even though there there's still some controversy among uh, uh, the medical sciences uh, about this issue? Does science play a factor in any of this, or is it all based on? Um, interpretation of law and precedent? It's, that's a, another superb question. Uh, there's something that our listeners should understand about a case like this. The Supreme Court can grant leave to different parties to file what's called an amicus curiae brief. And these amici, which is plural, these amici briefs, take very strong positions on a certain side. So you can have, and I've read, you know, the amici briefs, from the women's clinics. Conversely, you can have uh, an, an amicus brief from an organization that believes that life starts at pregnancy. And each one of these briefs strongly advocates using both legal positions and, as you said, what they see as the science, their positions. And the court reads every one of these briefs, and anybody who feels like spending a few days in reading these briefs can actually go into the Supreme Court's website, click on the case, and see each one of these briefs because they're publicly available. So I, the courts, absolute, all the courts, not just the Supreme Court, does take into consideration the science. And, Tom, it actually came up in oral arguments. Justice Sotomayor was having a conversation with Mr. Stewart, who represents Mississippi, and it came up about this idea of fetal heartbeat. And she argued right away. And, of course, as we know, Sotomayor is one of the more most liberal judges, justices. And she said, no, you know, it's been proven that viability is at this point, and this is the point that the court has always looked at. So there was pushback in the oral argument itself about what we should see as the beginning of life from a legal abortion perspective. And that's something that I guarantee is going to be in every single opinion that gets written about this case. Well, this, this is fascinating. Um, 
but like me, you will, you think that it's it's going to be May or June before we see any result of this case being heard, any any possible opinion that would come down. Um, but but let's let's get back to the sky falling. Um, for some people, it, it really is the sky falling if Roe v. Wade is gutted. Yes. And I think I can speak to that. The reality is we know that before before abortion was legal in the United States, people had abortions. And if abortion becomes, you know, more, far more illegal than it is now, then people are going to still have abortions in the United States. What's going to happen is they're going to have more unsafe abortions. People are going to end up crossing state lines for abortions, and the reaction to that is states are going to be making it an offense and the federal government's going to get involved when people start crossing state lines to have abortions. It seems to me that if abortions are going to be at all a part of American society, that they should be made as safe as possible for everybody involved. And that's really the role of places like Jackson Women's Reproductive Center. That's what they do, is they try to provide legal and safe abortions, as opposed to, as we said, illegal and unsafe abortions. And that's something the court will absolutely take into consideration. And that in no way is flaunting the law. We're not saying that if you make something illegal, we just have to assume that people are going to go ahead and break the law. But when it comes to something like a woman's control over her body and women wanting and needing in times to have abortions, they're going to go ahead and get them done. So that's something that the court addressed in Roe. That's something that the court addressed in Casey and at multiple occasions since in affirming those decisions. Is, is public opinion ever a part of consideration when the Supreme Court is deliberating over a case like this, or is that, are, are they just completely isolated from that? I'd like to hope that they're completely isolated from it, and I don't believe that politics or public opinion should play any role in what the Supreme Court does. The idea that someone becomes a justice for life is a structural way for the justices to be independent. They don't get elected. They don't have to get reelected. They, in theory, shouldn't have to answer to anybody except the principles of the law. That said... You know, the justices themselves, as I said before, realize that the Supreme Court is perhaps not viewed in as positive a light as it has been in the past. I feel that with a decision on a case that's as important as Dobbs, on an issue such as abortion, the Supreme Court really should decide, as you said, based on the science, based on the law, based on, you know, the concept of stare decisis, rather than, I wonder how the public is going to feel about this if we decide in way A or if we decide in way B. I'm confident that they'll do that. And, and yet people are of the opinion that this is the most conservative court in a very long time. They are. And, how how you know, does politics think, again, not be part of that equation? Well, I'll give you one great example. Okay. Um, so everybody felt that when Amy Coney Barrett joined the Supreme Court, that she was going to decide in certain ways all the time. And we can even remember former President Trump's frustrations with her. 
because Amy Coney Barrett already has proven herself to be a very competent and some would say excellent jurist who you know really does her best to decide every case according to the law. The, the reality is this is a pretty strong 6-3 conservative majority, right? We know that. That doesn't mean that every case, including these landmark cases like the law of the land for abortion, are going to be decided in anything close to a 6-3 conservative majority. We have overarching concepts like the notion of abortion, but we also have specifics of the case, and each justice may see the specifics of the case in a different way. So, yes, I think that, you know, people have said to me, you know, in the past couple of weeks, well, if somebody had to go somewhere like Las Vegas and bet on how this would work out, yeah, I mean, I think that you'd probably want to bet somewhere aligned with that 6-3 majority, but don't be surprised at anything that the court does in this case or any other case, because all of them are proving that they're competent jurists, which I know is a frustration to some people who are left of center, um, but they're good justices who see the world in a different way. My guest is... Um, oh, I turned my notes over here. Um, Aaron Solomon, Chief Legal Analyst for Esquire Digital. We've been talking about... Uh, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization being heard by the U.S. Supreme Court and its potential impact on Roe v. Wade, uh, the law of the land, as it's often called. Um, Aaron, I, I really appreciate you explaining all this, and, and I think the Supreme Court is something that we all know about, but maybe we don't understand as well as we should, and it's nice when someone like you can help explain things a, a little better. Um, but we're almost out of time, and I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Um, first, let's start with um, Esquire Digital. What what exactly is Esquire Digital, where you're the chief legal analyst? So what we do at Esquire Digital is we're basically a full-service legal marketing firm. We help lawyers, particularly trial lawyers, grow their business and do a better job advocating for the rights of all of the clients who they serve. Uh, they can find more information on what I write on our own publication, today's Esquire.com. You could also certainly Google Aaron Solomon with one A, and you're going to find lots and lots of things that I've written over the years. Pretty much anywhere the law intersects with things like politics and sports and, and, and issues like that. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for spending this time with me and the listeners, and keep up the good work. Thank you very much, Tom. Thanks for having me. Take care. Again, Aaron Solomon, Chief Analyst, uh, Legal Analyst, rather, for Esquire Digital. And we'll have more of the Tom Sumner program. The Tom Sumner Program.com. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck up. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. 
Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Say, objection. I object. I object to that, Your Honor. Oh, hi, Mom. What's up? Dana, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just um, attorney general stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So, listen, we just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards, and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam? Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dana, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go.
and the Tom Sumner Program. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Mr. Scrooge. Good morning, Mr. Scrooge. Good morning, Mr. Scrooge. Good morning, Mr. Scrooge. Bah, humbug everybody. Good morning, Mr. Scrooge. Well, the meeting will come to order if please. Are all the advertising people represented here? Everyone except amalgamated Amalgamated cheese. Well, if they're not here for the Christmas pitch, I can't help them find new ways of tying their product into Christmas. That's why I'm chairman of this board. Uh, let's hear it for me. <laughs> All right, Abercrombie, what are your people up to? Oh, same thing as every year. 50,000 billboards showing Santa Claus pausing to refresh himself with our product. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the public has come to expect that. That's and, uh... right. It's become tradition. Fine, fine. Uh, you there, crass. Uh, I suppose your company's running the usual magazine ad showing cartons of your cigarettes peeking out of the top of Santa's sack. Uh, better than that. This year, we have him smoking one. Mm-hmm. Yes. It got Santa a little more rugged, too. Both sleeves rolled up and a tattoo in each arm. One of them says, Merry Christmas. Well, what does the other one say? Less tars. Great stuff. Uh, but, Mr. Scrooge... Well, who are you? Bob Cratchit, sir. I've got a little spice company over in East Orange, New Jersey. Do I have to tie my product into Christmas? What do you mean? Well, I was just going to send cards out showing the three wise men following the Star of Bethlehem. I get it. And they're bearing your spices. No, that's perfect. No, no, Uh, no. No product in it. I was just going to say, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Period. That's a peculiar slogan. Old hat, Cratchit. That went out with button shoes. You're a businessman? Christmas is something to take advantage of. A red and green bandwagon to jump on. A sentimental shot in the arm for sales. Listen. Get the halls with advertising. Christmas, you can be sure those are Tiny Tim chestnuts roasting. Tiny Tim chestnuts are full-bodied, longer-lasting. This visible shell protects the nut. Now with XK29 added for people who can't roast after every meal. Tiny Tim, Tiny Tim, chestnuts all the way. Tiny Tim's roast hot like a chestnut hot. And they are mild, 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 mild. Fa-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-
words to live by, Cratchit. Ah, for you, maybe. Can't you just wish someone a Merry Christmas for the pure joy of doing it? Why? What's the percentage in that? Well, let me show you how to make Christmas work for you. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas. And please buy our beer. There you go, Cratchit. That's Christmas with a purpose. I know, but wait a minute. Don't you guys make enough profit the other 11 months? Christmas comes but once a year. <laughs> Funny thing you should bring that up. That's exactly the point I was about to make. Hit it, boys. Christmas comes but once a year, so you better make hay while the snow is falling. Oh, that's opportunity calling you. But just so your mercenary toe. Buy and add and show all the toys, show all the toys up on the shelf. But just make sure that you get a plug, you get a plug in for yourself. But Christmas comes but once a year, so you better cash in while the spirit lingers. It's slipping through your fingers, boy. But don't you realize Christmas can be such a monetary I guess you fellas will never change. Why should we? Christmas has two S's in it, and they're both dollar signs. Yeah, but they weren't there to begin with. Huh? The people keep hoping you'll remember, but you never do. Remember what? Whose birthday we're celebrating. Well, uh, <clears throat> don't get me wrong. Uh, the story of Christmas and its simplicity is a good thing. I buy that. It's just that we know a good thing when we see it. But don't you realize Christmas has a significance, a meaning? A sales curve. Wake up, Cratchit. It's later than you think. I know, Mr. Scrooge. I know. On the first day of Christmas, the advertising's there. With newspaper ads. Billboards, too. Business Christmas cards. And commercials on a pear tree. another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night, 
And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid, and the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Alexander Zanjic, don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. 